Hello, welcome to Seniors and the People Who Love Them. I'm Cookie. I'm Pinky. And I'm Wendy. Today we bring you our seventh episode of our podcast. We will be talking about assisted living facilities, and we have a very special guest joining us today, Mr. William Young, who is the Executive Director of Shangri-La Senior Living and Paradise Assisted Living, both assisted living facilities in Maryland, I believe Cadenceville, Maryland, if I'm correct. Welcome, Bill. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure. My name is Bill Young, William Young to some, and I am the executive director of Shangri-La Senior Living in Ellicott City and Paradise Senior Living in Catonsville. I have been a executive director in assisted living for just about 20 years now. I'd like to go into assisted livings and bring teams together, build teams, and turn buildings into great success stories or keep them going as great success stories. I really think outside the box, teach my teams how to think outside the box. And that's whether it's from a financial aspect, marketing, but also a lot of it in, uh, in nursing. I will work a lot with nurses where I've had a lot of people in the industry in the past where I've had staff members thinking we're not able to take care of your loved one. And I like to sit down with my staff and I guess I'll say strategize and figure out ways we can take care of people because everybody deserves a home. I love that. I love that as well. I know a little bit about assisted living, Bill, and I know you'll be able to expound a little more on your your two. I used to work at a, a facility in Catonsville, and I had the pleasure of coming to Paradise Assisted Living. And this has been at least, I would say, about maybe 15 years ago. Do you recall, Pinky? I think you went with me when we got a tour. I was impressed. I'm not sure if you were at Paradise then, Bill. No. So as a matter of fact, the company I work for, I was actually the director of Shangri-La and Paradise nine years ago also. Mm -hmm. And I stayed there for two years, went on to a couple other projects, and I just came back about a year and a half ago. So I was I was brought on board nine years ago to help operationally wise, um, actually in the purchase of Paradise. I think, okay, we were before nine years ago. We went to paradise before nine years ago. About 15. Oh, yes. But first, our weekly disclaimer is that we are not physician or lawyer. If you have a medical issue or legal issue, please seek to practitioner or lawyer to give you professional advice. Okay. So when it comes to assisted living, I do know that it is for people who need help with daily care, but not as much help as a nursing home provides. I know they range from 25 or more individuals to at least 100 or some more. I visited one that had over 120 some patients. There is something also called levels of care. And I know you could probably explain that to us a little bit, Bill, when it comes to what the needs of a particular individual is. Assisted living facilities range in them having their own apartments and sometimes share rooms and also common areas. And then there are other services that are provided, three meals a day, assistance with personal care, help with medications, housekeeping, laundry, pretty much anything that you would expect in a facility. So the exact arrangements vary from state to state. Bill, let me ask you, what kind of service does your assisted living facility provide? 
Well, just, just as you were saying, as far as um, in the industry, we, we refer to them as ADLs, which are the activities of daily living. A lot of times people think activities of daily living means bingo and watching movies and everything else. <laughs> I guess that could be on the activity spectrum, but your activities of daily living are getting dressed, using the bathroom, taking a shower, eating, grooming, getting from point A to point B. Again, what we do is we, we do assist in all ADLs. So whether someone comes in and is perfectly able to walk or they're walking with a cane or a walker or a wheelchair or they're entirely bed bound, um, we do provide end of life care also. We work with hospice agencies on that. The other thing that I do consider a specialty is as far as in any type of cognitive concerns. So as far as memory care, quote unquote mental health, we do get pretty creative as far as that goes. I personally have two Australian shepherds that I bring into work here and there that the residents love. Again, we do we do the same amount that anyone else out there can do as, again, as far as any type of uh, all of your personal, physical, and cognitive care. That's great. I have an Australian shepherd too. I saw you smile. <laughs> uh-huh. He's uh he's getting up there in age, but he's still our boy. Yeah, ours ours are four and a half and a year and a half. So the other day, I threw them both in my truck, and my wife said, "Oh my goodness, you're actually taking both of them at once." <laughs> I bet they're very active at that age. We yes, adopted him later in life, so he's always kind of been an old curmudgeon. <laughs> yeah, they and they they both love playing uh, playing playing fetch. Uh, the residents throwing balls for them. Oh, maybe. that's so yeah. wonderful. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. I know the residents love that. It's the best therapy you can say. Mm-hmm. Um, that's absolutely. what I want. You know, all clients, doesn't matter which condition they are, they love it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think that patient doesn't move it, but if you bring a dog, oh, they were waiting and they're walking with him and, you know, everything like different person. So, it's the pet is really integrate uh, part of their therapy. Really. It's good yes, for it, employees too. Oh, absolutely. I was <laughs> um, I I was working down in Bethesda for about four years at a uh, at a community, and I would bring at that time it was our border collie, so I'd, I'd bring Kelsey in on a regular basis. We had a family member as a sister that dropped her sister off, and her sister came in, curled up in the bed in the fetal position. And the family member pretty much said, good luck. That's, you know, that's what I've been dealing with for all these years. She's all yours. We read the biography and I saw that the family had a farm and I was told that she would never pretty much never get out of the bed. So within a couple of weeks, I brought my, uh, my border collie in and brought it up to her door. And I was like, miss, we'll call her miss Susie. And she said, yeah. I said, do you like dogs? Cause of course I knew she liked dogs. And she said, yeah. I said, well, I said, I have my border collie here. And she said, well, let it come into my room. And I did tell a little bit of a white lie. I said, my dog's not allowed in the room. If you want to see my dog, you need to get out of bed and come over and see my dog. Within six months, <laughs> this lady was out of the room, eat, eating downstairs by herself, out shopping, moved out, got an apartment, got a job. Oh, that's awesome. Unbelievable. It's, Wonderful. I mean, I'm just getting goosebumps. I just have story after story with things wow. like that. And it's kind of a program that I came up with myself, my staff that I refer to as social immersion, as far as um, just treat, treating, treating people like people, treating right. them normal. Right. Some of the research that I did for this episode 
was interesting, giving us some facts and figures. Nationwide, 28,900 assisted living facilities have nearly 1 million beds. And that is according to the most recent data available from the National Center for Assisted Living. They vary widely in size from fewer than 10 residents to more than 100 with an average capacity of 33, which actually surprised me because I, I feel like that's a larger number than I thought it would be. Interesting. Yeah. More than half of assisted living facilities are part of national chains with the rest independently owned. They gave some percentages on what services assisted living facilities generally provide. So like about 80% provide access to a pharmacy, dietary and nutritional guidance, 70% can provide physical, occupational and speech therapy, 67% hospice care can provide hospice care. I work for a hospice that goes into assisted living facilities and skilled nursing facilities and provides hospice care. 55% provide mental health services, 51% only provide social worker services, which I'm sure is very needed. Some offer special services for people with dementia, sometimes called memory care units. I know we're pretty familiar with that. And then only 8% accept dementia patients. And that's kind of low. Yeah. Yeah. Some of these numbers are just mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Because of course, a lot of things are pretty much state regs in Maryland, but I know you did say nationwide. So yeah. There's a lot of states, I guess, just wouldn't require some of these items. Right. Some have special uh, assisted livings for like Parkinson's disease and things like that. So yeah, I just thought those were some interesting stats. Bigger than I thought. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Some of them I was like said, very, very surprised at because some of the things when you talk about the pharmacies in Maryland, uh, state regs say, you know, we do have to have a preferred pharmacy. Hmm. So it, it better be 100% of the ones in Maryland. If it's not, someone's going against the regs. I think Maryland <laughs> is probably regulated more heavily than most oh, states. Yes, we are. Yeah. And I, I, was, <laughs> I was in I was in the uh, the small country of Montgomery County for nine years working there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so really, I mean, I mean, in a way, I will honestly say that I I feel like I was spoiled by having the blessing of working in Montgomery County. When mm-hmm. I started in the industry twenty years ago, we were pretty much required to um, me- memorize its uh, the state regulations, and the state wow. held us to them one hundred and ten percent and. What a wonderful, amazing start that gave me in the industry, really over a lot of our competitors, other counties, other states, because we we knew our stuff. It's interesting because in hospital nursing, I started my career in long-term care. I actually worked in long-term care before I even became a nurse. And in hospital nursing, there's sometimes this kind of looking down attitude about skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities. But the truth is they're so much more heavily regulated than hospitals that in many ways they're more efficient, more adherent to what the government wants. And just as another example, as a nurse in a long-term care facility, you didn't have an IV team to come. You had to put your own IVs in. We did our own CPR. If somebody coded, we did all that. Whereas My friends that were in hospital nurses, they didn't know how to do any of those things because they had IV teams. They they called a code when somebody 
you know, had. so it was a very different experience. And in, yes. in many ways, they think you're not as skilled, but right. truly I felt like I had more skills in certain respects right, right. than they did for some things. So that was interesting. I agree with Wendy. I agree with Wendy because I do work on a skill facility in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And Wendy is right. There is hardly anything critical care that nurses does. Highest care they do is stage two wound care. Right. You know, no nebulizer, no breath, no G2, no wound that stage four or three, no IV, no blood transfusion. Everything brought to them, and they just watch. So their skill, as Windy says, is not sharp as nurses that work on a long-term facility or assistant living. They are more educated, you call, or experienced on a critical care. Yeah, we are. I mean, like you said, we're pretty much, I mean, I always go and refer to it. It's almost like we're in our own little towns or our own little cities or... Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, what 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 we have there is what we have, and if someone is unresponsive in a room, yeah, you you yell for help. You start CPR, whether you're the housekeeper, the cook, the executive director, the whoever it is. Which again is why everybody in the building is trained in CPR and first aid. Yeah, Bill. In my experience in social work and social services, one of the um, bigger issues, especially when they're transitioning from a subacute or skilled nursing facility, they have improved to the extent, but they're not able to return to their previous living situations, and they may um, probably do better based upon what the uh, medical team feels in, in an assisted living. And one of the big questions is, how much does it cost? How do I pay for that? So it, it's interesting because my, again, my entire career, probably at least once a week, you know, you get, you get that question. How do people pay for this? What programs are out there? And, you know, you kind of look and, you know, tongue in cheek and grit your teeth a little bit. And we remind them that in the majority of the buildings out there, it, it is all private pay. Now, we, we do actually offer the Medicaid waiver over at Paradise. In, in Catonsville, we do have 10 Medicaid waiver beds, but also we have a, a pretty large waiting list for those beds also. It's very, and it, it's very unusual to find Medicaid waiver, much less to have a place that has 10 beds, because at the end of the day, communities, they're really not making much, if any, money uh, with Medicaid waiver, unless you have a small group home and you're the owner, you're the cook, you're the nurse, and you're the caregiver. Um, besides that, like I said, it, it, it is private pay. And sometimes people will say, what do you mean by that? And I'll say, you write us a check and we, we deposit it in the bank and it clears. And that, that's private pay. So whether, whether it comes from, um, you know, generally annuities, um, you know, of course, social security, VA, uh, long-term care insurance, but it is, it, it is private pay. And what, one of the things that our buildings, we are definitely on the lower end of the, uh, of the rate scale. We, I mean, our, our buildings start at Paradise, $2,420 plus level of care and Shangri-La. Per month. Uh, Is that per month? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Per okay. month. And then Shangri-La, $2,750. And that, that, that is actually for a private room shared bathroom. But it's very interesting you asked that question because I'm, I'm going to say one thing that a couple of my 
regional supervisors have always told me in the past is people always ask the wrong questions. People always go and they say, how much is the burn? And what they never really hone in on is, tell me about your levels of care. We currently have two, at least two of our competitors in the area who have levels of care that are well over $3,000 per month. Mm-hmm. Our, our levels of care, we only have three. They're $660, $880, and $1,100. So we are, we are providing the same service for $1,100 with our level three that someone else may be providing their $3,100 level five. It's a very, very interesting dynamic. And I, I do try to educate, I do educate all of our consumers when they're coming in. I said, always assume your loved one is going to be at the, at the highest level of care only because they could slip and fall. They, the, the resident could uh, yeah, slip and fall. They could break a hip. They could have a stroke and anything can happen. And a lot of times people don't prepare for that. And then all of a sudden they go into a community at a level two and grandma falls and breaks a leg. Next thing you know, she's a level five and her monthly rent just went up $2,500. Right. And you know, when I visited Paradise um, some years ago, I think at the time you had two waiver beds and now you're saying you have 10? There's 10. Yes. So so when I was was there nine years ago, we either either had eight or nine. And then when I came back this time, I said they did have 10. Mm -hmm. So also with the waiver beds, just because we have waiver beds does not mean that we have to accept quote unquote waiver residents. So if we have someone who wants to pay you know, full, full price, and then we have a, a waiver resident also, at least from the financial aspect, then generally we, we would end up taking a private pay individual. Okay. Another question that also comes up, and um, thank you for explaining that so well in detail. Does insurance pay for anything? Say you yeah. have a um, long-term care insurance, or um, some people think that when they're in a facility, um, their pay is subsidized by maybe something from the VA or? Right. Yes. So this is also a question that I get at least once a week where people will ask, they'll say, well, does insurance cover anything? And I'll say, well, there's long-term care insurance, which is a check they get every month and then can be handed over to to the facility. But generally what the the main question they're asking when they say, does insurance cover anything at all? They're talking about their Medicare Part A, Part B, United Healthcare, Kaiser, you know, the, the, uh-huh. the insurance companies. Why I mention to them, because they're, what the hope is, is that they will help cover room and board and levels of care, which insurance companies do not cover any of that at all. What it covers is the same thing it covers for you and I, is when we go to the doctor, we go to the dentist, physical therapy, occupational therapy, medications. But as far as room, board, and level of care, uh, health insurance, as we know it, does not cover any of those items at all. Great. Yeah. I have a question, Bill. Sure. When you say level of care, does that include all ADLs for the client, like all daily activity? Example, when you say boarded room, is it food included in it? Or because naturally, level three means light patient require more care, like, you know, they are bed bound, they want wheelchair bound, they need incontinent care, you know, whole nine years, like dressing, bathing, everything. Right. So on that 
everything, everything food and everything be included on a level of care, or there is an added extra price. So, so the the the, stand, the standard room rate covers the room, it covers utilities, it covers three meals a day, two snacks, weekly housekeeping, and weekly laundry. That is pretty much, I'd say, standard with ninety nine percent of the assisted livings out there. And then the level of care is strictly taking care of your ADLs, your activities of daily living. So again, dressing, bathing, uh, eat, eating, if you needed help, as far as any type of cognitive concerns that may, may be going on, wandering, combative residence, showering, uh, transferring, ambulating. So your, your levels of care are strictly items that our, that our care staff are taking care of. Versus when I go and say room and board, that is just strictly the monthly room rate. Um, Wendy mentioned that some facilities offer memory care. And I think you said you take patients that have dementia, different types of dementia. Do you transition from in your particular facility if maybe you come in and you're more cognitively intact and then as time goes by, you're starting to see that maybe that residence should be in a different area of the facility? I run communities a little bit different. Um, okay. I have been in communities before that have had separate memory care buildings or wings. And in, in, that, in that case, generally a resident would come in, maybe take the mini, uh, mini mental test, would get the information, the healthcare practitioner form, the resident assessment tool, and an assisted living manager's assessment. That way you would deem a resident, quote unquote, memory care or not memory care. The industry is very interesting because memory care also gives communities a reason to charge a lot more also. Whether you're getting your money's worth or not is debatable, but it, 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 is, it is definitely a reason to charge a lot more. What I do in my two communities, I have some residents in both of my communities that are virtually independent. I have quite a few that are general assisted living, and I have quite a few they could easily be moved into a quote-unquote memory care unit as the industry looks at it. I'd love to refer to my communities as communities because that's what they are. It's like our neighborhood. It's like our town. It's like our village, whatever it may be, where if someone comes in and their mom is, is fairly independent, they may be in one room. Next person comes in who's general assisted living. They can be right next to that independent living resident. And then someone else comes in who is deemed, you know, cognitively impaired and they can be right there the neighbor of those other two people i don't i'm not a believer of of sticking people that are that are different even if it is slightly different on different wings and different buildings but with that also i do go and say that our buildings we manage mild to medium memory care i will say that if we do have someone who's very 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 heavy memory care we are not set up for that and I'm talking about somebody who's ripping off all their clothes, running up and down the hallway, pulling fire alarms and trying to throw chairs through the front door. All um, of which we've seen. Gotcha. All yeah. of which we've seen and had to deal with. Yep. <laughs> and, and even that, I mean, even in true memory care units, even that is unusual. That, that is kind of the odd one out. But I guarantee some companies out there would probably take half of my memory care residents and say, you belong in this unit. And one thing that I've done over my career is I do like to get kind of mild to medium memory care residents. You put them in a population that's higher functioning, 
they generally will rise to the occasion and become a higher functioning versus going and getting grandma who, you know, maybe, maybe thought today is Monday instead of Tuesday and doesn't know who the president is of the month. And all of a sudden now she's pushed into a memory care unit because that's what our industry believes she should do for a little more money. And next thing you know, grandma doesn't even recognize me next month because she's declined so much because of her surroundings. You do think outside of the box. <laughs> and that is a very good point, Bill. We appreciate yeah. your points. Thank you. Not to box people on a certain boxes and that decline their condition. And unfortunately, and again, just because with the industry, a lot of that, a lot of that is done for money reasons. I've seen, I've seen a lot of memory care units where your staff will go and grab all the memory care, shove them all into one room and have one caregiver watch, quote unquote, watching them as they're all sitting there watching TV. Yep. I mean, I've mentioned a lot of memory care is actually a lot easier to care for than general assisted living. Very true. What would you recommend for our audience to look for when they're looking for an assisted living facility for their loved one? So there's really, I guess I'll say there's really three things. Um, a couple of them are very basic. You know, no, number one is proximity. You want to get something where you're, you're driving home from work to your house. You want to get something that's on your way or pretty close. Otherwise, you get something that's 15 or 20 minutes off the beaten trail. It's amazing how many people don't take 20 minutes out of their time to go visit mom. So, so pro proximity is a huge thing. The next one, which is very obvious, price point. You know, we, 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 we can afford what we can afford. You know, we, we pay a certain amount for a house, for a car, for a babysitter, for a dog, for a meal, because it's what we can afford. It's in our budget. So you're definitely looking at budget. The, um, actually, I, I just thought of another one also. The, um, Another one, which is huge, which a lot of people don't like to talk about because in the industry, staff turnover is atrocious. That is one thing with Shangri-La and Paradise that I, I use as a major selling point. I brag about it as much as I can because I love our staff. I personally hired probably 50, 50, 60 percent of them nine years ago when I was there. Wow. There's another great amount of them are, are or two, um, two head cooks in, in charge of dietary over at Shangri-La. These two gentlemen actually opened that building 16 or 17 years wow, ago. Wow, that's great. Yeah, um, my manager at the building, she started there as a caregiver 12 years ago. Now she's, she's, made, she's doing all the general operations of the building. I can I just go story, 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 story on Paradise and Shangri-La. And when I was hired back, I did ask, I said, well, I said, I really do need to tour both buildings. And they're like, you know, okay. And I told them, I said, I really don't care about what shape the buildings are in or what else is going on with whatever. And they were, and they were, they were both still in inadequate shape and in, in adequate shape and good shape. But the biggest thing I wanted to do is, was check to see how much the staff was there from years ago. Mm -hmm. And I, I've been in buildings where we turned over 30% of our staff every six months. And, and, when, and when I say that, it's not because we wanted to turn them over. It's because people didn't want to come to work. They missed 15 out of 20 shifts because just rant, just call outs. Um, Especially through COVID, I know it's been extremely challenging in healthcare. So I think that's amazing. I get goosebumps when I talk about the staff in both of our buildings. They're so overly just crazy dedicated. Um, so so I, would, I would definitely ask as far as staff turnover. 
And then, of course, the other thing um, that, like I just mentioned a few minutes ago, I'd ask about levels of care. It, executive directors and marketers and companies, when you come in, pretty much the last thing they're going to talk about is levels of care because the majority of companies out there have four, if not five levels of care. It's, it's hard for us to sell you a room if I'm going to go and say, hey, you know what? Your mom could be paying three grand a month if she just has one slip. You're never going hmm. to get that out of any community ever say that. That's, that's very true. Yeah. Well, I have one point to audience that wherever you decide to choose for Bill's recommendation, what point you should look, look carefully the facility contract. Take it home with you. Go over it with your other family member. Consider a financial advisor or lawyer service. The National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys has a searchable national database of practitioners. How much entrance fee and monthly rent and is security deposit required? What level of personal and healthcare services are provided? As Bill say in his facility, only three level of care. So knowing my knowledge, three level of care, high care, medium care, and heavy care, very simple. He also said the some level facility has six, seven labor. So what do you mean by six, seven? What is one included and what is seven included? There is too many different variation in between. And you need to look at the price range for each level. When it's more level, it's more confusion. So you need to make sure that you do look at the contract before you do it. And also you have a couple of questions. What privilege do residents have? For example, are they permitting to bring personal furniture? That's the one thing that also helps to make our the assistant living is like homey environment because they brought something from home. What are the transfer and discharge policy? What specific reason would lead to a resident being asked to move out? And how much notice would they given? Is it residence, uh, residence space health? If he or she has to be hospitalized. Because it's my knowledge, when person comes to the hospital and they are on assistant living, they are still paying for room, room and board until they are discharged. And sometimes patient might be longer because at least assistant living, they are on a level two or three. And now they need a facility for a little bit longer time and that could be three months so they are paying for three months room and board so you need to ask all this question uh, does the contract put any limitation on a right being legal action for injury negligent other costs consumer report caution that many residents include abbreviation clause which require dispute to be Settle outside the legal system by third party. Keep all these points, keep in mind when you choose the facility, as Bill said, where his facility, it seemed like simple level of care, but it's not usually that easy at sounds in a lot of facility that out there. And that, that and that's exactly right. And the other thing, at least in the Maryland state regulations, every single resident has to be reassessed by a delegating nurse every 45 days. If you have, just like we we're saying, four, five, six levels of care, 
your your scoring levels between those levels are a lot lot more narrow than when we have three levels of care. So just you know, like and, and again, you know, we all we all match your levels of care up to up to the state levels, but someone is going to jump from a level four to a level five a lot easier than with us than when they're going to jump from a level two to a level three. There's a lot more numbers um, widening it in ours than there are when you have the higher levels of care. And it seems like Bill's, what he's talking about three level, it does match medical assistant level of care. Yes. A lot of times people will ask me, they'll say, explain the levels of care. Mm -hmm. As we know on here, it is extremely convoluted. It will, you know, you'll, you'll be at question number 42 and it'll say, if you answered A, then go back to question C and see what that mm -hmm. one did. So a lot of times, what else I mention to people in levels and levels of care for us with having three levels of care is I will say the 95% of our residents come in level two. Hmm. So, and, and that, that's at $880. So someone will come to me because of course, everybody wants to come in at the lowest level. So somebody may go and say, well, you know, my mom, she needs someone to give her her medications and she only needs help with A through Z. <laughs> you know, so... Um, is she level one? And I, I have actually mentioned to people, I'll say if your mom or dad truly, truly, truly scores on a level one, go and get them a senior apartment with four hours of care a day. Mm -hmm. Don't waste your money. Because with the level one, we are doing so little. We may be prompting, cueing, reminding, and giving your mom meds. Go save $2,000 and possibly get a senior apartment. Now, then again, with the level three, Generally, that is when we are helping with a lot of ADLs, a lot of activities of daily living. But then along with that, then there is a cognitive part of it also. Mrs. Mrs. Jones might be taking swings at our, at our staff, trying to punch them when she's getting in the shower. Every time a resident, every time a family member comes in the building, she may be trying to run out and jump in the nearest car, you know, cussing, throwing food. It's, you know, so generally a level three also is is pretty hard to get to. And we, we have had hospice residents, end of life care, and just because you were there and bed bound doesn't make you a level three. We've had some of our bed bound residents that are much easier to care for than a level two resident. But yeah. some communities out there will use that as a reason to bump someone to a level three. Oh my goodness, they're bed bound, they're end of life. We're having to bed bathe them. They're just automatically now gonna be our highest level of care. That is not true if you do it on the true scoring tool. Hmm. We face that same challenge in hospice where if you're general inpatient care, which is a hospice term, Medicare will pay 100% of your stay in an inpatient facility, which is what a lot of people want. But if you don't meet that specific criteria, which means that you have symptoms that are basically not being able to be controlled. Right. If you don't meet that criteria, then you have to pay for the room, which is very costly. It can be $250, $350, $450 a day, depending on the hospice. And if you are simply, you know, peacefully dying, you're not going to meet that criteria. And it is such a struggle for families because, because they don't understand it. They're not insurance experts. And um, it's such a struggle in the hospice industry. And that's something we, we love our relationships, with our hospice companies mm -hmm. over the years. 
Another thing that people in the, in the assisted living industry don't realize is a lot of times you may have a resident and all of a sudden it's like they're on, you know, severe, terrible decline. They're starting to develop, you know, stage three decubitus. You know, we're getting the wounds. We're getting these things where per assisted living regulations, after 30 days, we're going to have to discharge this resident. This wound isn't, you know, back down to level two or whatever it may be. But if a resident is is truly declining enough where the nurse and doctor are saying, you know, again, Mrs. Jones only has two months to live, then under hospice, we can keep a lot of residents that would normally be discharging under assisted living. And a lot of assisted livings will just automatically go and say, well, you're out of here. You know, we're going to shove you off to the, to the nursing home or to a hospice house. And a lot of it is because we don't care to manage your situation with hospice versus with myself. If there's something in the regs that I can find a way in there, I'm going mm-hmm. I'm, I'm to do it to be able to care for the resident to be able to keep them in their home with the hospice care where a lot of places will be discharging these residents left and right. And this is a segue, I guess, into my question and exactly the process for coming into paradise or Shangri-La. Are they, um, you get phone calls from people that say, Hey, how is that assessment done? Or does the nurse come out to the person's home or is it generally from the hospital that you get your admission? Some, so we probably get 95% of our admissions from placement agencies, Place for Mom, Care Patrol, Caring.com, okay. other mm-hmm. you know, smaller ones that are out there even after that. And then I guess pro- maybe a third of them from home, a third from other communities and a third from nursing homes. And generally what we'll end up doing is, of course, you know, the, the very first start, in the, uh, very first thing in the process with everybody out there is we do require per state regs, we have to have the healthcare practitioner form. Right. So, so once we get that, and again, in the state of Maryland, that must be filled out and in our hands within 30 days of move in. If it's 31 days, the state says it's no good anymore. It yep. has to be within 30 days. The struggle is real. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. <laughs> so with the healthcare practitioner form, that is really where we start the assessment. What we do if, if we're able to visit the resident, we will visit the resident, but mainly what that is, that's mainly a fact-finding mission. You know, we're, we're really going out to the community. We're talking to the caregivers. We're talking to the nurse. We're asking for some nursing notes. And then our visit with the resident is more, more than anything, just to make sure they really do exist and to pretty much do like a cognitive assessment. Everything else clinical, we already have on our sheets. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not going to make them jump up out of bed and run up and down the hallway. Mm-hmm. Um, I know some places do, but we, we are trusting that what everybody is telling us is true. And we, we remind them, it's like, we're trusting that everything you're telling us is, you know, in fact, the truth. Thank you for answering that. So we're going to take a break and we will be right back. Okay, welcome back. This is the part of our podcast where we will review any feedback or questions received and give you some resources if you need to continue your research. We're a very new podcast, but we have already received a bit of feedback and review, so thank you to everyone, and please keep them coming. You can contact us at seniors at seniorscast.com. We thought we would add few medical term and abbreviation, but what that means each week. 
here are few to start with. Let's start with OD. OD means right eye. And that is so important because I come across in my practice that people are mistaken all this ODO say uh, OU. So let's start with OD. It is right eye. Oculus Baxter means in Latin right eye. OS is left eye. Oculus Finster means on Latin word left eye. OU, both eye. Oculus Utricu means in Latin word both eye. Now, there is a few that I'm going to also add in into it, and then we will carry on that on the next podcast. Usually, DX, you can, when you read your record, DX comes to as a diagnosis. DVT, deep vein thrombosis. ED, which everybody should know, ED means emergency department. Not like the television show, which was ER. <laughs> <laughs> ASAP, as soon as possible. I use that a lot. A-N-E, accident on emergency. AC, before meal, AM in the morning, HS at night. BMI, body mass index. Everybody should know that. BP, blood pressure. CXR, gas X-ray. So let's stop at this point and we will bring you new abbreviation next time. Thank you, Pinky. Those are wonderful. Some of the resources we found to assist you with this topic were um, the National Institute on Aging. I find they have articles for almost everything healthcare related. This one is called Residential Facilities Assisted Living in Nursing Homes. Um, AARP very good options. Theirs is called Assisted Living Options. And then I found a new website this week while I was doing some research, and that's the National Academy of Elder Law. And they have a lot of great resources for legal questions or just direction on where to go with some things. Um, that would also probably be a great resource for healthcare decision-making, which we talked about last week. Okay. And ending this episode, we would like to thank you, Bill. You're welcome. My pleasure. For coming out today and sharing your knowledge and a wealth of knowledge and experience with us. Is there anything else you want to add or something that you're thinking about that you probably maybe want to just reiterate? Well, one thing, and I don't know, um, there is actually but another source out there that in the industry that we will recommend to people really over the years. And I, I truly miss the paper version of it, but it's actually the, um, the guide to retirement living source book. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I'll mention to people, they may go and say, well, this placement agency, you know, my budget is $4,000 a month. And they just sent me to six places that are $7,000 a month. So with, with the Guide to Retirement Living Sourcebook, I have mentioned to people, so get online, look at that. That way you can start to shop around by county, by price. I believe it has the levels of care in there and the, the size of the communities, like I said, as well as just the basic starting price. So I'll say you can actually flip through there to kind of get a little bit of an idea. Again, kind of like when you're looking for a house or a car. So the, um, that, that is something we've recommended to people. And that also does actually have um, 
a lot of the sources for elder care attorneys, for home care, for different things like that. We have no affiliation with them. I can't even tell you who runs it or owns it or anything. Um, but it's, again, it's just kind of an all-in-one package. Sure, that's very helpful. Sure. So if someone was interested in your facility, Bill, how would they contact you? And again, my, uh, my, my name is William Young, and I am over at Shangri-La Senior Living. My cell phone number is 443-251-9321. Again, 443-251-9321. Or online, you could look up Shangri-La Senior Living in Ellicott City. And we, we do have a website, www.shangrilaseniorliving.com. We do still have some of our rooms available at Paradise for 2420 plus level of care. Currently at Shangri-La in Ellicott City, all of our rooms at 2750 are sold, but we do have private units starting at 3300 that are pri private room, private bath. That's great. Perfect. That is my personal, my personal, that is my work cell phone number. You can text me, you can call me. That is the best way to, to get a hold of me, whether it's for you'd like to move your loved one in our place or even if you just have questions about the industry or anything else. Well, that's wonderful for you to be sharing your information. Thank you. Thank you. I, I can really tell like that you're an advocate yes. for people. You can, you just get a feeling for people. It's really nice to hear somebody that's, you know, it's, it's not just a job. It's, it's, you know, a dedication to. So, so, so it's interesting. And I, I don't have the same story that most people in elder care have. You know, most people may have had their grandma or grandpa they took care of for years and years and years. And all of my grandparents and my my parents um, are all gone now. But we have a um, we have two sons. One of our sons is 26 years old, and he is high functioning autistic. And it's very interesting because my passion for people pretty much comes from being an advocate for him and his autistic friends with behaviors, physical issues, concerns over the years. And I just, just kind of switched up with the age group and went, went a couple years older <laughs> mm -hmm. and just really became a huge advocate. And there's such a similarity that I've seen between, I always say with like the autism and some of the dementias. Out yes. There. One of these days I'm going to write a book mm -hmm. because when I, when I first started 20 years ago, I was using the strategies I would use at home and I'd have seasoned caregivers and it'd say, how did you get Ms. Smith to do that? Or, oh my goodness, what did you, what did you do? How did you learn that? What are you doing? And I said, well, when you live with it 24 seven and it's a family member, it's amazing the, uh, the strategies and just different things that you can learn. And I, I share that with my staff in different places and they teach me things as well, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, I you 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 need to care if you get in this industry. You you need to care. Yeah, I agree. I grew up with a brother who has autism and cerebral palsy, and I think that just comes naturally oh, to you. Yeah. And so, I became a nurse later in life. It was truly what I was meant to do. And similar, like sometimes even my parents would be like. How'd you get him to do that? Right, right. <laughs> you just, you just figure it out. Yeah. Yep. Very interesting. I love it. Hey, Pink. Okay. Well, let's do my joke of the day. <laughs> Wrinkles means you laugh. Gray hair means you care. 
Scar means you live and a fat ass means you love tacos. Our joke of the day. Thank you, Pinky. Okay, that is our show for today. We hope you enjoy your broadcast. Please subscribe to our upcoming episodes. We will be releasing new episodes every other Tuesday morning. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for future topics, please visit our website, www.seniorscast.com. You can email us at seniors at seniorscast.com. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Pinky. I'm Cookie. And I'm Wendy. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.